There is no delight, the equal of dread. If it were possible to sit invisible between two people on any train, in any waiting room or office, the conversation overheard would time and again circle on that subject. Certainly the debate might appear to be about something entirely different, the state of the nation, idle chat about death on the roads, the rising price of dental care, but strip away the metaphor, the innuendo, and there, nestling at the heart of the discourse, is dread. While the nature of God and the possibility of eternal life go undiscussed, we happily chew over the minutiae of misery. The syndrome recognizes no boundaries in bathhouse and seminar room alike. The same ritual is repeated with the inevitability of a tongue returning to probe a painful tooth. We come back and back and back again to our fears, sitting to talk them over with the eagerness of a hungry man before a full and steaming jump into the story story we have to discuss leo valentine the bird man who danced with gravity all right do you want to know about leo valentine the bird man who danced with gravity because sure. you have to understand it if you're going to understand anything you're going to have to understand leon alfred nicolas valentine a french bird man known as the most daring man in the world <laughs> he was a stunt guy, he was a daring do, he was a daredevil, and in 1956, he did his first exhibition in Liverpool, England, where he strapped a pair of, of balsa wood wings onto his arms because his whole deal was, I can fly with bird wings. And he apparently did. He would glide, he would strap himself to the underside of a plane, they would drop him, and he said he could fly for like three miles doing this. He was a pretty popular guy uh, because this is what they did for entertainment in the early 20th century. And people would come from miles around to watch the bird man sail through the air like a bird man. <laughs> Um, okay. Uh, 1956, he's, he does his first British appearance, uh, and uh, his wing accidentally hits the plane on his way out, and uh, he plummets to the ground. His parachute gets caught up in his wooden wings, and he smashes on the ground, dying instantly in front of, like, a 100,000 people. Uh, it's horrible. It's terrifying. And there was someone in the crowd that day who saw it happen, and his name was Paul McCartney of the Beatles. And he was there with his best friend, George Harrison of the Beatles. But that's not who we're talking about because also in the crowd <laughs> was a little boy who came to see it with his family named Clive Barker. Liverpool's yeah. own Clive Barker witnessed the death of the Birdman and he said it was like the biggest influence on his life as a child. I mean, um, watching someone plummet to their death after thinking they're going to fly mm -hmm. is probably a pretty big uh, uh, thing. And not as uncommon as one might think, I suppose, at certain points in history. I assume yeah. at certain points in history, if someone thought they were going to fly, you were most likely going to see somebody die. I mean, it really depends, because it depends on where you are. How high can someone truly, truly get uh, from the ground at certain points? I'd have to get pretty high if I was going to jump out of a plane, honestly. Uh, yeah. Even with a reliable parachute, I'm not jumping out of a plane. No. Yeah. So little Clive Barker so. saw, no he saw the Birdman. No offense skydivers. Yeah, no offense. No offense if you were a daring do daredevil. No offense. You got more power to you. It's just, it's nuts and I don't know what you're doing. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the Birdman. So Clive Barker's little boy watches this happen. Is like, I'm going to be a horror writer one day. And in the 1970s, he becomes uh, the worst thing in the world, which is a theater person. And he writes <laughs> many plays, including The History of the Devil, which is like the big one that people remember, like that still gets done uh, about the devil going on trial. He writes all these plays with uh, with with uh, with a local with a theater group that have a lot of like blood and guts and gore. Uh, it's kind of like the heyday of like alternative theater in England. And he then starts writing short stories because he's like, I I think I just want to stick with this horror thing. Writes a ton of short stories, publishes them all as the Books of Blood, and uh, which is like in six volumes, I think. And uh, uh, a little man, a little man named Stephen King, uh, reads (laughs) reads these stories, and he says, "I think this Clive Barker guy is the future of horror." Splashes that quote on the front of Clive Barker's books, and he becomes an instant sensation in horror circles. He's a new, he's the new yeah. future of horror. Uh, a movie is made called Rawhead Rex based on his short story, Rawhead Rex. It's terrible and he hates it. So he's like, from now on, I'm going to make my own movies. He takes a short story called The Hellbound Heart, makes it into a movie called Hellraiser, and the rest is history. Clive Barker becomes just a force to be reckoned with in horror. And the books of blood are kind of where it all started. Uh, I read these books many times over when I was a young man. I remembered reading dread many times. And I remember thinking, hell, this is, this is one of the best horror stories ever written. This is awesome. I went back and reread it this past week. And I don't know what I was thinking other than the fact that I was a <laughs> stupid teenager at one point who didn't have much experience reading horror. Uh, this book, this this story is terrible. This story is terrible. It's poorly written. It's poorly plotted. It makes no sense. And it thinks it's making a point, but it's not. I would put this as worse than the whimper of whipped dogs, in my opinion. Damn. I hated it. You know, at I least the it. whimper of whipped dogs wasn't all smarmy about it. The was whimper, a little smarmy about it. The whimper of whipped dogs. But it wasn't like at least was trying to make some kind of trying to make a decent point about like mm-hmm. you need to like the 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 city is the city is it chews you up and spits you out. This short story is like clown is gonna get you, I guess. Well, I thought the the point of the story was that everyone sucks or specific people suck. And then they hurt people. And then everyone sucks. I think the point of this story is vegetarians are afraid of meat. (laughs) Because that seems to be kind of what Clive Barker thinks a vegetarian is. is a person who's terrified of meat and is so scared of it, they won't go near it even if they're starving to death. Until they're driven insane and eat rotten meat, I guess. I guess that's the point. Also... Being afraid of something and being made to deal with that thing will drive you so insane you forget who you are and you become an axe clown, I think is the other point that Clive Barker is trying to make. I don't know. This story is stupid and I hate it. (laughs) But before we go off on our opinions about it, this is The Dark Descent. The stories collected by David G. Hartwell. Uh, This is Medusa in the Shield, which is about psychological horror. Uh, and this is Dread by a young Clive Barker. The reason David G. Hartwell likes this story and likes Clive Barker's horror writings is he says basically that they are they are rough and unformed. This is a guy just at the beginning of his career learning how to write horror. There's a there is a there is a punk quality to it. Like this is these are the, all the writings of a young guy who's just making his place in the world of horror. And at the time, there was nothing. 
you know, there was something kind of shocking and new about all of this. And he brought gross-out body horror to the masses. I mean, Hellraiser was a popular movie, and we had never seen anything like it. So oh, he's the one who brought gross-out body horror to the masses. To the ma- when I say to the masses, I mean like he made it palatable for mall audiences. They were like, "That's what Ooh. I mean." Yeah, Clive Ooh. Barker, go f yourself. <laughs> <laughs> now, to be fair to Clive Barker, this is this, these are young writings, and also he brought other things to the masses, like. Uh, like he made kink palatable in in horror, like not as like something to be afraid of, but just like kink is a part of daily life. He brought sexuality mm-hmm. and uh, homosexuality to uh, horror without it being a, a, a terrible thing, because Clive Barker is a very openly gay man himself, and he was like, mm, gay people can be the leads in horror stories too, and they can and they can carry a story because you know his short story in the hills, the cities, which is an amazing story main two characters are a gay couple who are having a bad time because that's Clive Barker. So to give credit where it's due, and I do love a lot of his work, it's just this this story is seems like, no offense to you, but it seems like it was written by a college student who's got some big ideas and doesn't... Because it's about dread, but it ends up being about an axe clown. I don't... In any case, what's this story hey, about? <laughs> axe clown. Uh, it's about a jerk... <laughs> philosophy student or whatever yeah who's a psychopath <laughs> but you repeat to... yourself jerk philosophy what? jerk philosophy oh, right. student yeah. <laughs> is redundant am i right am i right <laughs> never met a philosophy student i had one philosophy like experience at my school and mm-hmm. i was a freshman the philosophy teacher the first thing the the philo- philosophical conundrum they brought up to us was abortion and i was like please why is this your introduction to us? <laughs> We're going to start with abortion and work our way up. Uh, yeah. Strangely, abortion not mentioned in this story, although you think it might be. It's about a guy who likes, who is using philosophy to excuse the torture of innocent people, basically. Yeah. That he wants yeah. to inflict upon people. He's like, I'm helping them. Mm-hmm. Also, I'm better than everyone, and I'm a jerk. Yes. His name is Quaid. Um, mm-hmm. But he's a philosophy student, but he's also like 30-something. He's not even like a, yeah. a young guy. He's this 30-year-old guy. Nobody knows anything about him. He's not the main character. The main character is, uh, is a young or is a young guy. Yeah, Steven. Steven's our main character. We kind of see referred everything. to as Steve throughout the entire short story, except for like three times. Right. It makes a big deal at the beginning of the story. You know you're in for trouble when the short story begins with a thesis statement. It begins with a mm-hmm. thesis paragraph about dread. <laughs> And you're like, oh, no, like you got some big thoughts, don't you, Mr. Barker? Um, but, yeah, they meet at college. They're about 10 years difference. It also says that like the 80s were like this was an era of the cult leader. So you sort of you're sort of like, oh, I guess is this going to be about a dread cult? But it also isn't like I guess they're saying no. that like Quaid is charismatic. But also Stephen yeah. seems to be aware of Quaid's like BS and like aware that Quaid's like in any case, they he becomes fascinated by this Quaid guy who won't shut up about dread. Yeah. Uh, about how everyone's uh, afraid of something and you've got to you got to dig it up or something. Uh, and yeah, because people just use buzzwords to make people interested in what they have to say. Yes. The irony being and dread that, is a buzzword. Buzzword. <laughs> yes. Not a buzzfeed, but uh, not a buzzfeed, a, bu- a buzzword. Um. So they make friends with this, yeah, they make friends with this this young woman uh, named, uh, oh God, I can't even think of her name, uh, Rachel Gretchen Grushin, uh, Garusa, Deriza, what's her name? Cheryl. It's Cheryl. Cheryl? <laughs> they make friends with yeah. this, yeah, 
Well, they make friends. Yeah. She doesn't seem to like Quaid much either. Right. It's that thing where it's like the the person in college who talks a big game and sort of develops like a following. <laughs> in this case, a following of mm-hmm. one or two. Uh, but yeah, like he insults. I also just don't like the way they talk about Cheryl. <laughs> yeah, he it's insults really her a lot, which seems to attract her to him. She starts hanging out with Quaid a lot. Let's just skip to what what ends up happening in this story. He basically, uh, they go on vacation together. He locks her in a room for a month and yeah. starves her and forces her to eat meat. And then he's like, Steven, look at these pictures I took. Yeah. And Steven's like, what the hell is wrong with you? That's illegal. No, it's not. She didn't call the police. So everything's clearly she's happy with what happened yeah he quaid frames it as like well cheryl and i talked about doing something like this and so she would had to have known and she would i guess like at one point she was became oh oh this is quaid doing this to me uh because she's a vegetarian which like as i said up top means she's terrified mm-hmm. of meat so he locks her in a room with like a leg of lamb or whatever cooked meat but she refuses to eat it until she gets so hungry she eats it after it's gone bad um there's also a lot of talk of her like bathing herself and pooping in a bucket uh because Mm -hmm. not only is this about confronting someone with their fears or dread it's about like humiliating them like well yeah because also he's he's not doing it for them he's doing it because he gets some sick twisted joy out of it right but yeah and then steven's like you're nuts but then he's like drugged steven's alcohol and then yeah he's like i'll go grab some books for you and steven's like okay yeah. I can't be in any danger here. What are you doing, Steven? Or Steve, Steve or whatever your name is. Steven has also admitted that he's terrified uh, that he was in an accident when he was a kid and he lost his hearing for a while because of the concussion. Mm-hmm. And he became like trapped in his own like unable, un- inability to hear. So his biggest fear is losing his hearing and being cut off from yeah. the world, being isolated from the world because he's lost his hearing. Uh, and so what is what is Quaid to do to Steven? I got a little confused at that point. <laughs> oh, did you? Because <laughs> what's going on in this story is pretty straightforward, but Barker writes around things quite a bit for no reason. And so, yeah, Stephen is chained to a, like, uh, a, a grid, like a metal grid in a mm-hmm. silo or something. In a, like, a, a, he's at the bottom, or the, he's in a, a silo, I guess. And yeah. it's pitch black. And Quaid straps a device to his head so he can't hear. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to, spoilers, he is strapped to this device for like a day. Yeah. Like a day. And what happens to him? He goes bananas. <laughs> How bananas <laughs> does he go? Axe-wielding clown bananas. <laughs> he, for a day, with and, and sensory deprivation, yes. Horrible, yes. Kidnapped, yes. He understands what's happening, but he's also just like, I am now deaf and it's dark in here. I don't know who I am anymore. I'm completely insane. I'm a baby man. He becomes a baby man. Mm-hmm. Like He's like, mama, mama, goo goo gaga. And then he gets set free and he's like, goo goo gaga, mama, mama. And he runs away and mm-hmm. he loses his mind completely and he gets put into a homeless shelter where he's a goo goo gaga baby man who poops himself. And he does. Like, he's like, I poop my pants. I don't think this is how the mind works. No. I think even if you went a bit nuts because someone sensory deprived you, I think like after like a little time out of it, you'd be like, okay, okay, okay. Whew, I'm free. But then we figure out, we learn that. He's beat up by the police. He does get beat up. Oh yeah, the worst cop in the world shows up. Yeah. 
but then he's like, he the cop beats him up, but then he's like, Goo Goo Gaga, baby man. And the cop's like, oh, man, I think this is actually a mentally ill guy. And that's when he sends him to, like, the homeless shelter, the halfway house. Yeah, the the, the cop just thought he was a protester. <laughs> a hippie he or did. something. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he said, the kid hadn't started fighting back and calling for civil rights the way most of them did. Excuse me? <laughs> yeah, Clive Barker's got a low opinion of cops. I mean, for what it's worth, that's fine. But yeah. plot-wise, it's I mean, like, I come on. He's literally a, a baby man. And so then we there's this whole weird thing with Quaid having a bunch of photos of people who've been murdered by an axe. Mm-hmm. And Quaid's thing is that he's afraid of being murdered by a clown with an axe. That's his big dread. And that's kind of vague. We're never sure if this is something that actually... Like, where do you get these photographs? We're never sure if this is something that happened to Quaid. That's so vague, but it's also so very specific. Yeah, yeah. Like, he's got photos of people who've been axe murdered. And he has nightmares about a clown coming after him with an axe. The end. Uh, it doesn't get more specific than that. And then in the homeless shelter, Stephen... His, dre- his clothes are all soiled, so they dress him in, like, mismatched clothes. And he's like, ha, ha, my goo goo gaga, I look like a clown. And then during a fight, he escapes. Before he escapes, he grabs an axe. Yeah. Because it's his friend. Yeah, what does it say? It says... <laughs> I love that you're the reading The axe this. seems to like being touched. <laughs> this is a writer who thinks they're awesome. And thinks they understand how insanity works. And thinks that this is... Not only does he grab an axe, man, he thinks the axe is, like, talking to... Like, none of this makes any sense. Absolutely yeah. none of it works as a story or as a character study or anything. But for those reading along at home, suddenly he looks clownish and he's carrying an axe. Where's he going to go? He's he's going to go to his friend. And, and do what? He, he, he doesn't kill him. No. He just chops him up. Yeah. That's the irony, I guess. Yeah, because he's like, I'm going to chop him up, but I know how to chop him up so that he stays alive and I can torment him. And I'm like, how do you chop someone up with an axe enough? Like, how do you surgically chop someone up with an axe so that they're, like, not dead? Or at least, like... While you're a baby man. While you're a baby man. But that's it. Like, that's how the story ends. And you're like, oh, I get yeah. it. Dread. What does this have to do with dread? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's not even about people confronting dread. It's about people being, as you said, tortured. Like, yeah. like tortured. Like a saw torture. Like, I'm trapped mm-hmm. here and I can't leave until... But also the trap is like, she could get out if she just ate the meat. Which I'm not saying that makes what Quay did right. But also, mm-hmm. she knows how to get out of this room. But she's afraid of meat. Um... I actually like, looked up the movie to this one after oh, I read it. So did I. I have yeah. the movie now. I I, I, yeah. I acquired the movie and I sort of like tripped through it. But before we get to that, I'm just going to say that if I was trapped in a room against my will mm-hmm. and I was presented with something to eat that I did not like, I, something gross to eat that I did not like, a raw insects or uh, or like, I don't know, like blood, blood. I don't know. And they were like, you're not getting out of here until you eat the thing. I'd be like, all right. And I would just eat the thing. Like as gross or as off-putting or as as personally offensive as it was, I'd be like, bowl full of squirming maggots? Sure, fine. Just let me out of the room. I'll throw up later. I actually don't think I could do it. Yeah? Yeah. You couldn't eat meat? You couldn't eat the meat? I, if it was, I mean, I could eat meat, but if it was something else that like 
was personally offensive to me, I don't think I could do it. <laughs> okay, if it was like a living baby, I probably wouldn't be able to do it. Or maybe a <laughs> no, cooked but even baby. if it was I like would... even if it was like cooked maggots, I couldn't do it. I, I know my limits. <laughs> if if cooked maggots go bad, do they get maggots? Hmm, is probably. it like is it recursive or a fly is like my Let's babies talking about this <laughs> <laughs> so i'm just saying that like it seems a lot to drive a person insane um the sensory deprivation we talked about i'm like okay like but i don't think that that would drive you killer clown insane i think it might Not immediately cause a lot of ptsd but like yeah and then i don't know why quaid is afraid of clowns at all like it doesn't go into it i don't know now, why clowns need to be involved in this now, you mentioned the, the 2009 movie Dread, mm-hmm. which is an adaptation of this story. Uh, it's an hour and a half long. No one gets trapped in a room until there's only 30 minutes left in the movie. So the whole front end of this film is the relationship of Quaid, Stephen, and what's-her-face, uh, Cheryl. Mm-hmm. And they're all philosophy students together, or psychology students. And this is an experiment they've all set up. That's like the big mm-hmm. difference. And they interview a bunch of people and there's more people trapped in rooms. Quaid's still Quaid. He's still a jerk. He still sets all this up. But there's more people with different fears. And uh, and uh, Cheryl is afraid of meat because, of course, she was molested by her father and he smelled like meat. So that at least makes a little more sense. But yeah, it also ends with it does not end with Quaid being killed by a clown no. boy. It ends with... They, they split up Steve's fear into someone else, right? Yeah, uh, uh, yes. That's another guy who's afraid of who's afraid of the quiet, and they give Steven uh, a completely different fear. Um, yeah. Uh, he, his like, brother died in a car crash or something. Yeah, yeah. And there's, like, a woman who has, like, a birthmark that covers half of her body. But, like, mm-hmm. Quaid just humiliates her. Like, it doesn't even have anything to do with dread. Yeah. He just humiliates her, and she, like, tries to scrub the birthmark off, and it's terrible. Uh, a lot of, like, there's a lot of... Oh, there's also a lot of a lot of nudity in the movie. Like, like not like I'm trapped in a room and I'm naked. I it is. I have walked in and Quaid is painting a woman with large breasts, and so she's just in the scene for a while, sitting there naked with large right. breasts. Like it's that I kind guess. of thing. Just like oh, I guess we got to have some nudity in here. It's a Clive Barker story. But mm-hmm. how does the movie? I actually think the movie ends more intelligently than the short story, as far as like mm-hmm. a twist horror. How does the movie end? He he kills Stephen and chucks his corpse into the room and tells and tells Cheryl to eat it. Right. Uh, he doesn't kill Stephen. Uh, right. This other guy, uh, Joshua, the the guy right, who yeah. the guy with the sensory deprivation thing, thinks mm-hmm. that Stephen was in on it, so he kills him with an act. Yeah. And then Cheryl has that's is right. Left. Yeah. Yeah. She's shut in the room with Stephen's dead body, and that's the meat she has to eat, which is still terrible, and it doesn't make any sense, and the story is still awful, mm-hmm. and the movie is bad. Like, I was, I watched bits and pieces of it, and I'm like, it's only 90 minutes long, and I swear to God, the first 10 minutes felt like 30 minutes. Like, it's a lot <laughs> of talking. It's all gray. It, it, it's it's just a miserable film, um, and, and, uh, and, but it does at least end a little more intelligently than... It, Axe clown and at least goes, it gives some motivations to the fears. Right. Except for the whole birthmark thing. Like, that's just, he just humiliates her. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it seems to step away a bit then from its own, like, kind of smarminess a little bit, maybe. Just, it's like, yeah, this guy just sucks. He does just suck. This is about a guy who sucks and hurts a lot a of point people. He a point, is he just sucks, yeah. 
again, when I read this when I was a kid, or not a kid, like a teenager, I was like, rock on. Like, this is hardcore horror. And I can see where, like, early in the 80s, people were like, well, you know, like, this is where horror is going. It's, it's, it pulls no punches. But now it just seems like, I don't know. Did you know there was a comic book based on it? That doesn't surprise me. I think that this this story isn't about the plot or the characters so much as it is about the descriptions of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Because, because you get, yeah. like you said, gross out horror. I hate gross out horror. In fact, I don't really even consider it necessarily horror all the time. Right, I, yeah. I just consider it gross. I don't think yeah, everything the... that makes people uncomfortable is, is horror. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, horror is what it is. It's all subjective. But to me, mm-hmm. this is what I call mean horror, which is just yeah. you're supposed to, like, get off on, like, bad things happening to innocent people, which mm-hmm. I don't mind if that's an element of a story I'm reading. That bad things happening to innocent people is kind of the crux of a lot of horror. But I think yeah. we're su- we're supposed to get off on it. We're supposed to be like, mm-hmm. ooh, like this is kind of gnarly and rad. And I'm like, I no, it's just there's not enough there there. And this is yeah, not a short short story. No, it's very long. Yeah, it goes on for a while. This is a novelette. This is <laughs> this is our novelette that we were pining for, and. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I think that maybe just speaks to just how different I am as a person now than I was back Mm -hmm. when I first read this. Uh, I've never liked horror like this, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I just I I actually I think I prefer how this one ends just because the bad guy gets his comeuppance in the end. Right. Right. I prefer how the story ends versus the movie. I hate. I see that. Movies that end like, oh, but the killer was the victor all along. Okay, great. Now I just feel sad. <laughs> so there've been uh there've been movies and and television adaptations of a lot of the books of blood. Uh The Midnight Meat Train was turned into a movie called Midnight Meat Train, which is actually I think a pretty decent movie. Uh, mm-hmm. The Yattering and Jack was an episode of Tales of the Dark Side. Uh, uh, in the Hills of the Cities was turned into a comic. Well, a lot of these were turned into comics. Um, Dread, obviously. Um, there have been several adaptations in comics of New Murders in the Rue Morgue. Uh, Rawhead Rex, we mentioned. Um, mm-hmm. Just a lot of these stories. Uh, oh, and uh, I believe... The, the Last Illusion was changed into Lord of Illusions. And the main character of that, Harry Damore, pops up in uh, a lot of Clive Barker's Hellraiser stories. So, oh, and uh, Cab- no, Cabal was not part of the Books of Blood. That was his own separate thing. But that was turned into Nightbreed. So there's a lot of Clive Barker movies and stuff that are better than this. Um, yeah, and I, I like some of Clive Barker's stuff. I, yeah. I, I appreciate the Hellraiser universe. I think it's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. I just don't like looking at it. The weirdest Book of Blood adaptation, Books of Blood, there's two movies called The Book of Blood and one called Books of Blood, and they are both based mm-hmm. on the framing device from The Books of Blood, which is a guy who gets cursed so that these stories all appear on his body, and which is kind of like the illustrated man from, from Ray Bradbury, but it's also just like two movies have come out that are like, this framing device is interesting, because the whole idea of Books of Blood is that you're then reading these stories on a man's body, and then it ends with another short story that, that sort of closes, like the last Book of Blood has on Jerusalem Street, uh, which is about this guy then gets skinned, and these other guy uh, mm-hmm. ends up, the guy who skins him, I think, or something like, ends up being one of the stories. But it's a, it's a framing device, and there's, I don't know, they were like, we, we're, we're going to crack this nut. We're going <laughs> to figure out how to turn this bland framing device into a, a standalone motion picture. And they tried it, and neither of them are good. Um, but Probably because 
uh, his son tend to be the story. Right, the story is the other stories. The story is the other stories. I know. It's just, it's weird to me. Um, yeah, Body Politic was turned into an episode of Quicksilver Highway. Uh, Midnight Meat Train, yeah. Uh, Dread. That's Dread by Clive Barker. What'd you think? There's a Criminal Minds episode very similar to this one. Yeah, there's a movie series very similar to this called Saw that, as much as I dislike Saw, is better than this. I like the Criminal Minds episode, too. You just love Criminal Minds. It's your favorite show. I do. You do. I <laughs> I love, you're like, I'm lot. not, not going to deny it. <laughs> I love Criminal <laughs> Minds. My mind is a criminal mind. Um, it's Clyde not. Park. I don't It's a. It's a very inaccurate show. Does a lot of, like... Criminal profiling it has been proven to be not a thing. You shouldn't do it. It's inaccurate. It leads you down a lot of rabbit holes. But it makes it's for a, a good show. show. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I like Clive Barker, too. I think, And I know that Clive Barker is a nice guy, uh, a friend of mine from college, uh, corresponded with him throughout grad school. And Clive Barker said, hey, if you're ever in L.A., come on down and talk. I, I can set you up with some stuff. And he moved to L.A. And Clive Barker was like, hey. And they, be in, they maintained a professional friendship. And Clive Barker is apparently a very nice, very supportive man, very creative man. He's written children's books. He's also a visual artist. The guy does a lot. So check his stuff out. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, oh, also Candyman is based on one of his short stories. So Candyman, Son of That makes sense. The guy's written some really good stuff. Just not this story. Let it go. <laughs> Let it go. And I don't. I don't yeah, think yeah, yeah. that. I don't think Guillermo del Toro would. Uh, would like. Would, would. Would adapt this story. I don't think this is a Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> He's not into no. this kind of mess. This is not a Guillermo del Toro uh, delight. So uh, let's let that go. But I'm going to ask you one question, and that is, Willow, what is our next short story? Fall in... of the House of Usher. Oh, are we going back in time, perhaps? I don't know. I've never read this story. Well, because this story that we read today was from the 1980s, and this is from the 1830s. So we oh, are... Oh, we are going back in we're time. We're tumbling <laughs> back in time to the world of About Edgar... 150 years. If I may say, Poe. Poe. Edgar Allan I do love Poe. me some Poe. We didn't do uh, an intro. Well, we'll get to it at the end, because <laughs> Poe. Poe. Edgar Allan Poe. Did I do that on this show once? Poe, Poe, Edgar no. Allan Poe? I did. I know I did. I did it when we discussed... You did it, the Raven. The Raven, yes. So I don't, I don't have to tell you what Poe Poe Edgar Allan Poe means anymore. Just know that it's related I, to junior I, high. Okay, I'll oh. go back and listen to our Raven episode to prep for this next one, I guess. Uh, and you'll be Raven. Also, I think we did a. There was a, a, a an anthology film we watched that had Edgar Allan Poe short stories uh, as part of them. Uh, I don't remember what they're called. Yeah. I think Jane Fonda was in one. I don't remember much about oh, it. Oh, was it the uh, the was it the one with the horse and the fire? He, yeah, I think that had Edgar Allan Poe involved. Is that am I right or am <laughs> I wrong? We'll look it up later on. I do want to point out that I am uploading all of the Dark Descent episodes that we're doing uh, to YouTube. So if you go to my YouTube page, Phil Gonzalez, uh, there is a playlist now of Dark Descent of just the audio. There's no you don't get to see us. But if you want to, if you're one of the kind of people who likes to listen to things on YouTube, uh, tell your friends because uh, it's about time. I had to replace the theme song, so that's what I've been doing: is meticulously replacing the music of our theme song with another version of the theme song, but one that does not get flagged by YouTube. So, uh, 
So it's still yeah. in the Hall of the Mountain King. It's just a a copyright free version of in the Hall of the Mountain King. So uh, uh, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for joining us. Go to YouTube. Go to Del Toro Time at Twitter. Go to It's Del Toro Time on Facebook. And next week or next episode, uh, the Fall of the House of Usher, a story that I've recently reread, and I can tell you right off the bat, pretty good story. So. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Usher House. Here I we go. I actually have read this story. It's a classic. The house, it falls. Yeah. It's Usher. Or I was, uh, I was supposed to read this story for a class, and I didn't. That's what it was. Well, here's your chance. And when you read it, you can write to your teacher and say, guess what I finally did? Um, but, uh, and you'll let me know all about the interaction. But until we talk about Willow's failure to read The Fall of the House of Usher, I am Phil. And I'm Willow. And we'll see you when it's, it's Del, Toro Del Toro time. time. No, intro. Wait, hang on. Because it was Del Toro time. No, yeah, but we have to record the intro. Oh, we still want to do that? Well, then I'm Phil. No, you know what? Never mind. <laughs> <laughs>